Live from Dreerber, this is the Lock Tomb Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. Before we get started, just wanted to give folks a heads up that we launched something really cool on our website. A few listeners wrote in asking where they could find Lock Tomb merch, so we decided to reach out to fan artists and creators and make a Lock Tomb merch hub. So if you're looking for some Lock Tomb swag, go to locktombpod.com slash fan merch and browse through some incredible creators. Also, if you sell Locktomb art or merch of any kind and want to be added to the hub, shoot us a line on our website and we'll get that set up. Okay, let's do this. Today we're talking about As Yet Unsent, a short story included in the appendix of the paperback version of Hair of the Ninth and later published on Tor.com. As Yet Unsent is a series of secret journal entries written by Judith Deuterus between the end of Gideon the Ninth and the end of Harrow the Ninth when she's in BOE captivity with Corona Beth and Camilla. Just a heads up, we've already read Nona the Ninth, so we'll be coming at this with insight from that book. This was a particularly fun read post Nona. Mm, I have to say, I'm agree. glad that we saved it. But before we dive in, Amy, what does the cohort call itself during its slut era? <laughs> the what? The cohort. <laughs> You've been on Twitter too much. <laughs> I know. I know. There's too many. Like I like get a kick out of these slut era jokes. They are cracking <laughs> me up. I can't handle it. <laughs> That's a good one. And very pertinent because this is all about Judith. <laughs> yeah, I thought a cohort joke, it was time. Yeah. You say as you've had like 14 cohort jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Should we first go over the layout of this short story, which is a little bit weird? I mean, I guess it's not weird. Judith is nominally writing or recording this as a cohort intelligence file so that someone can find it when she dies or she can send it to the cohort as an intelligence briefing. But actually what it becomes is just a very sort of dry but insightful and kind of humanizing look at the time that Judith spends in between the end of Gideon when she's stabbed in the stomach in that fight with Teacher and she is picked up by Blood of Eden, along with Camilla and Coronabeth. And this is before the end of Harrow, where presumably BOE slash Camilla, Coronabeth, Judith find Gideon and Harrow's body, or whoever and whoever's body at this point, and pick them up. So it's in that time frame. And we get this very interesting recounting of the events that happened from this very, very sick, very injured Judith Deuteros, who is also like such a bore. But also is so great. I find Judith to be really interesting here because she is such a boring character. Mm -hmm. We actually see that there is depth to her and a lot of repression. And oh, yeah. give me a good story about someone being really repressed and sort of discovering themselves. I'm here for that. I will say that the other thing to note about imagining Judith recording or writing these entries is that she's actually storing them in her skin. Yeah. So the idea is that dead or alive, if the houses find her, this is actually part of a cohort protocol mm -hmm. that people follow when they are prisoners of war. Right. And... Judith is very much throughout this whole storyline committed to the houses. And I think the function of this 
short story, there's a many functions to this short story. One is that it just gives us a deeper read into a character who we really didn't get to know that well in either book. And so actually having it told through Judith's perspective is really interesting because it's a completely different perspective than what we've gotten at all in the first two books. And then it also, the short story serves to give us more context around Blood of Eden leading into Nona. And after having read Nona, we can kind of connect a lot of the dots that were unclear upon reading this before having, having read Nona. Mm -hmm. But there are characters in, specifically We Suffer, is a character that comes up here in As Yet Unsent, which is really the first time we hear about We Suffer in the series. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we know, We Suffer becomes like a primary character in Nona. And so it's just a really cool, it's a really cool short story. I actually really enjoyed reading it again. Yeah, me too. It made a lot more sense, I think, having read Nona. Yeah, for sure. I think what is also really fun about this is we get to see these interpersonal dynamics between Judith, Camilla, and Coronabeth, and mm -hmm. specifically between Judith and Coronabeth, which I don't know about you, but for me, when I first read this, took me totally off guard. It wasn't something I picked up on at all in Gideon was the dynamic between Coronabeth and Judith. There are mm -hmm. these like very tiny things but nothing that you would even think about until reading the short story. So I loved that that was a very unexpected relationship that is actually really important to the both of them. Yeah, totally. You want to jump right in? Yeah, let's do it. It starts with an untitled entry. Most of the entries are untitled, and it's just like little, you know, a couple of paragraphs in each entry. And this one, we are kind of set up. Judith is in captivity with BOE. She is undergoing a bunch of surgeries because, you know, she got stabbed through the stomach. And obviously, these people aren't necromancers, so they can't necromantically fix her. But they're doing basically what we would do. They have tubes, and they've hooked her up to a bunch of machines. And Camilla and Corona Beth are there with her. They're healthy. And this first entry starts... I think a couple of months after they're first picked up. And for some reason, Judith is able to do this because they've landed on a planet. They've been in space for quite a while. So this protocol is a necromantic protocol. So now she has access to necromancy so she can record this. I don't really know exactly how she's recording this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like imagining her literally peeling off her skin and writing on her skin with a pencil and putting yeah. it back on upside down. I don't think that's how it works. No, <laughs> but there is some though. there's some sort of communication that is being stored in her skin. Right. So regardless, they're on this planet. Judith is doing super poorly. She's kind of just talking about the conversations she's overhearing and learning a little bit about BOE. We learn a little bit about how they view these planets that the Nine Houses take over. They call them steel planets, and the Nine Houses call them shepherd planets, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. Steel, like S-T-E-A-L. Right. And the, the ideology is the houses think that it's totally fine to come in steal a planet away from its inhabitants because it takes quite a long time for that planet to die fully 
And by the time that planet dies, the houses have committed theoretically to resettling those inhabitants on a different planet and supporting them economically. Right. Of course, we learn throughout this and Nona that in practice that looks a little different, but Judith is very much bought into the ideology that the houses have around the fact that these planets are being shepherded. Right. So the last thing in this entry is that Judith mentions that the body still fails to rot, and it's later confirmed in the short story that this is Gideon's body. So this is really important context, because if you didn't have this, you'd be like, how is Gideon's body still intact after like a year plus of, yeah, like two years after she died? But it's because she's got God baby magic, <laughs> and her, her body is just not rotting. And then we move on to the second entry, which is about Camilla Hecht. And this is where we first hear about We Suffer. This is. And a lot of what Judith is sharing is basically how BOE is attempting to radicalize Camilla and Coronabeth and bring them over to their cause. And Judith, again, is very much not going to budge in terms of her allegiance to the houses. Right. And so... This is kind of the first entry where we see her struggle with BOE trying to turn Camilla and Coronabeth. And this is a really interesting entry because, one, we do get mention of We Suffer, where We Suffer is the one, according to Judith, who is really able to get through to Camilla Hecht and convince Camilla that the houses are being bitches. Mm -hmm. And they keep talking about something called the source gram, which is a little bit mysterious, but it's some sort of communication from within the sixth house from like 6,000 years ago, where BOE is essentially claiming that they've been in contact with the sixth house in the past. They have some sort of connection um, and that this is potentially where they're getting some of their intelligence. Right. And I feel like. We'll probably find out more later, but what I imagine happened is that Cassiopeia, soon after, I mean, relatively soon after becoming a lictor, started to have her doubts. And as she was building the sixth house, built this failsafe, which I think is the, the house's ability to basically transport itself entirely into a different system, and left some sort of communication or was in communication with Blood of Eden at the time. And also the thing that I think kind of gives this away is that they talk about the break clause and the break clause, that's a legal term. Right. Which is funny because <laughs> as we know from Nona, Cassiopeia's pre-resurrection profession was being a lawyer. Right. So it's interesting because this is the same break clause that they talk about in Nona the Ninth. And I had to look it up, but it's just a term in a contract that allows early termination of the contract before the default end date. So, you know, this makes sense. Basically, they had a contract with God, and this clause allowed them some way of getting out of that. And it's funny that Cassiopeia <laughs> wasn't just like, fuck this guy, like, we're getting out of here. She was like, let's make a legal agreement. <laughs> and like... A loophole. It is so sixth house. It is <laughs> it is so sixth. And so Judith is learning all of this through Camilla. 
And Judith is obviously pissed off that Camilla is being radicalized. And when she confronts Camilla about it, Camilla claims that she's just doing it because Palamides would want to know. Right. And they're all about collecting information and making decisions for themselves, whereas Judith is just very rooted in doctrine and tradition, (laughs) which is very second. We also get this really cute mention of Judith, Coronabeth, and Camilla playing imaginary chess. Mm -hmm. And we learn that Judith isn't very good, which is not super surprising, but that Coronabeth is pretty good and Camilla is the best, which is what I would expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I feel like we don't actually see this in Nona. So it's good to know that these three people had this amount of interaction before Nona, because by the time we get to Nona, they've kind of fallen back apart, especially Camilla and Corona Beth. They're not really yeah. on the same side anymore. I was thinking about how if someone read Nona having not read As Yet Unsent, mm-hmm. they should stop and go read As Yet Unsent first. I think it's really important context and explains some of the different relationship dynamics that are going on in Nona. And As Yet Unsent is in the back of Harrow, the paperback, but it's also online at Tor.com. For free. For free. So if you haven't read As Yet Unsent, highly recommend. Not only is it good. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you listening to this if you haven't read it? Are you cheating? Are you just listening to the pod without reading it it first? (laughs) (laughs) It'll take you so much less time than listening to this podcast. It's true. This is not a shortcut. (laughs) No. No. The next entry is about Corona Beth Tridentarius. I think the main takeaway is that Corona has already been radicalized, according to Judith, at this point. And we see this in Nona. So Corona Beth basically goes fully, or at least outwardly, fully to the side of BOE. And Judith kind of thinks that she's being weak and sentimental, but... You know, Corona Beth is, I think, a good person, flawed, deeply flawed, but I think is pretty easily convinced about the the moral issues of the house's imperialism and sides with BOE pretty quickly. Yeah, it's interesting because Judith in half of this entry is basically trying to justify or like excuse. She says she's not trying to excuse Uh corona's quickness to turn on the houses but judith does make a few cases and i think judith has a very thoughtful analysis as to why corona beth turned so quickly right and one she says that we experienced so much trauma when we were on the first and corona beth lost niberius which even if niberius kind of sucked they were still cavalier and you know necromancer even though corona beth wasn't a necromancer but they had a long-term deep relationship they were basically siblings right and corona beth witnessed ianthe her sibling murdering niberius you know yeah this isn't some like little t trauma this is some big t trauma that they all went through judith is basically like if this were a cohort battle we would be receiving services (laughs) after to support us But that's not the case. And so Corona's in a very vulnerable state. And of course, Blood of Eden took advantage of that. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because at the very end, we get our first little hint of Judith's true feelings. I mean, we get sort of a hint just in how much Judith is trying to excuse 
Coronabeth's <laughs> radicalization. But at the very end, when Judith is talking about Coronabeth's pleas with Judith to come over to their side, she says, Coronabeth sincerely believes that the houses have done wrong and worse, that they are being led incorrectly. The tips of her ears go pink when she is genuinely impassioned. Interesting. <laughs> you don't just know that about anyone. <laughs> no. <laughs> so we'll we'll uh, touch on that in just a moment. <laughs> yeah, and um, I also will say a lot of what's written here doesn't necessarily tell us anything new about Judith's personality, but it's a really fun validation of it. And there's this moment in this where Coronabeth is sharing with Judith that one of the other grievances, other than resettlements, that BOE has against the houses is this thing called business contracts, mm, where yeah. basically after the houses conquer a planet and its people, they draw up these contracts with them, and they are called lifetime contracts. And Blood of Eden's argument is that the people who negotiated these contracts assumed that the emperor, once the emperor died, these contracts would be null and void. But as we know, the emperor doesn't die. He is the emperor undying. Mm -hmm. Famously. And so they get fucked. And Judith basically is like, well, that's their fault for being so thick. <laughs> you know, like yeah, crime of assumption. Yeah. And Coronabeth obviously is like, you suck. Anyway, it's just like another... Another validation of Judith's devotion to the houses and the fact that she, even in hearing these arguments, which I don't know, to me are pretty convincing, she is not having it. Yeah. I mean, she is very dogmatic and that's shown here, but I also think that this short story humanizes her way more than anything else oh, yeah. in any of the books because for one, she sees herself as fallible and she sees herself as weak and right. that like she failed and she also fully admits to her own self-hate yeah which is yeah not surprising necessarily that she hates herself but surprising that she has the insight to know that she hates herself totally. she's not the type of person who is super dogmatic but like really believes it to the depth uh, like she's she has this strict rigid belief system but it's almost like a defense for the fact that she hates herself <laughs> totally yeah i that's such a good read really well put i totally agree this is not to say she's not a dick but i can't help but like her a little yeah know? i'm a judith stan yeah i was talking to some friends about this the other day my two locked tomb friends <laughs> where we talked through it all and we were just kind of debating on what is the message that Tamsin Muir is trying to send. Uh -huh. And we had like a long conversation about it. And I'll probably save it for the Nona reread to share it in full. But one of my friends was talking about how it seems that one of the messages is not that humans are horrible, that they're trying their best and right. they are deeply flawed. And there's a lot that people are up against, but that they're not inherently bad. And I really feel that for Judith. I think it's interesting to have a character who ideologically is so different from someone and yet 
we can feel a lot of empathy for this person. And Tamsin Muir does such a good job writing these characters in that way. I really appreciated that kind of insight that that my friend shared. Yeah, that is definitely one of the messages for sure. So in this next entry, from here on out, they are all untitled. Yes. And basically, Judith is surprised (laughs) that she's still somehow alive, even though her body is a disaster. And there's this really cute moment in here where she talks about how she's not really mobile, but Camilla is ruthless in encouraging the exercises for her legs. Right. Which is cute because in Nona, Camilla is very much on top of Nona, like stretching and taking care of her body. So I just thought that was a cute parallel. I also wonder if this is something that Camilla did with Palamides. And every time she has a necromancer on her hands, she's just like, gotta stretch (laughs) their legs. Totally. Totally. These poor weak babies. (laughs) It's kind of just talking about the day-to-day judith is finally allowed to go outside with corona and just describes the planet as a typical phallergetic planet which is a pretty broad description i guess it has animal (laughs) life and like vegetation yeah this is a spot where we see it played out perfectly the dynamic between judith and corona where corona pleads with judith to let her help her and judith rejects her and that upsets corona and then they have an argument and and it this cycle. I like how there's this bit in here that keeps on repeating where Judith just says, we had an argument, Yeah. period. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I realized when I was reading this, I have this memory in my mind of Moira Quirk reading this, and I realize this is not narrated no. anywhere. It doesn't exist as an audio file, but I read it all <laughs> in the voice of Judith in the way that Moira Quirk of course it out and it's the we had an argument is just it's so good every time i'm like i can picture it perfectly like i can hear it perfectly in judith's voice yeah i know exactly (laughs) yes i know exactly what you're talking about my question is is it actually corona or is she using yanthe's voice get out of here get out of here there is some really it could become important things snuck in here for later. And that is that after Coronabeth is pleading with Judith to let her help her, there's always this dynamic throughout the short story of Coronabeth trying to convince Judith, one, to let her help her, but two, to come over to BOE's side. Right. And in line with that, Judith explains that Corona is telling her that the cohort movements never made sense to her. And then she also tries to make this economic argument where it's not actually economically productive to just keep conquering these houses and then resettle them. And that economically, the more productive thing would be to actually integrate and allow for immigration and and absorption into the nine houses. Mm -hmm. And that, quote unquote, shepherd planets become more expensive. Especially the further out they go. Right. Because think about, like, there is no return on investment. When you flip a planet, the planet is dying. So from what I gather from something that comes up here later, there might be some drilling and Mm -hmm. mineral resourcing that can happen. But other than that, you kill something, you're not really getting much back from it. And so Coronabes making this economic argument and then says that she and Ianthi had always been interested 
in the way the houses were being run Mm -hmm. and that Yanthi always thought they were being wasteful. So clearly these two have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And I thought this was particularly interesting because in Nona, there's a line where it's an exchange between Corona Beth and Yanthi. And one of them says, we're so close to our goal. And this is in the moment where I think Corona is trying to convince Ianthi to like run away with her and start over. Right. And so it's curious here because throughout these books, we're always wondering what the fuck Ianthi is doing. And there's going to be a moment where we are going to know what the fuck Ianthi and Corona Beth have been planning for a really long time. Right. I thought that what was interesting about this as well was that it's clear from what Corona Beth is saying that the citizens of the nine houses don't really realize that the reason that they're doing all of this shit is because God's trying to get revenge, not as an (laughs) economic thing or as anything that really makes sense. He's just on this purely symbolic retribution quest, as I think Augustine puts it. And that's obviously something that it's, it's just wild to me that all of these people are following this guy when it very clearly doesn't really make sense to continue to expand and to push themselves in this way economically. And that's because they're not doing it for economics. They're doing it because God is still butthurt 10,000 years later. (laughs) Totally. Totally. But I, I think it's one of those things about this like blindly following something and not thinking critically about it It is really interesting that especially a house like the Six Mm -hmm. wouldn't be noticing or questioning this. But when you think about it, the Six House isn't really paying attention to the imperialism that's happening. They're really focused on innovation with necromancy. And so they're distracted by that. And all the other houses, I, I would say the third house maybe even does realize this, but they don't give a shit because it benefits the third house in these other ways that we don't fully realize. I mean, you know, conquering benefits the people who are doing the conquering in some ways. Right. But as as a whole system, right, at the end of the day, like your return on investment, is, it's just not sound. Especially since it seems to be taking them so much energy and resources to go out farther. When they're close to the nine houses, it makes more sense. But as they go farther and farther, it's like, that's a lot of energy to use to get almost nothing. Totally. There's one last thing in this entry just to note is that Corona Beth says something like she groomed herself for something and all it did was make her unfit for the purpose. And I'm wondering, like, what purpose, what are we talking about here? What does she mean by this? I thought it meant, maybe I'm taking the obvious answer, and maybe this is not true, but I thought she meant the purpose was becoming Ianthe's cavalier, and that in doing that, in in forging that bond, maybe, that she made herself unfit for the purpose because Ianthe wouldn't use her then, or something like, something about Mm. being Ianthe's cavalier. But it might be something a little bit deeper and more interesting than that yeah that was my first read yeah i think that's probably right i mean who knows but it could be like groomed herself to be king of the world i mean like i don't know right (laughs) we don't know who knows but yeah i just anything i just thought it was interesting so we'll see 
Sorry, Mel. One more thing. Mel made all the notes more or less for this episode, but I did contribute one thing, and it's that (laughs) Judith says, I could run a kilometer in 10 minutes, which was among the fastest for my adept group in junior reserves. Marta could run it in five. And I was like, what is kilometer? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) I mean, I know what a kilometer is approximately, but I was like, how long does it take to to run a mile like how does that translate so I just looked up what the average running times for your standard John Doe runners joggers and it says this is an official quote from Google the 2020 (laughs) analysis of recreational runners found that males average five minutes and 51 seconds per kilometer while oh in a 10k in a 10k yeah this isn't great this isn't great data Because you're going to run it at a different speed if you're running it in a 10K versus like just a kilometer. Okay, okay, okay. But I would say, though, that that (laughs) presumably means that if a person is running just one kilometer, they'd actually run it faster. Yeah. Okay, all of this is to say that I'm American and that... (laughs) And I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. You know, it's funny because I just read it as, I mean, I'm worse than you. I just read it as miles. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, a mile in 10 minutes. That's not that bad. Because like a five minute mile is bananas, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. The point is, the point is, Mel, that running a kilometer in 10 minutes is really slow. Yes. And so Judith is, I think I thought of her as quite fit, but Judith is weak as fuck. She's... She's necromantically fit. Right, but her body is weak and she's a fit necromancer. Right, 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 right. Okay, that's all I have to say. Thank (laughs) you for that contribution. (laughs) Anytime. I will say that up until the point where we really get the big story about Marta Dias, which is coming up in a little bit, there are at least one sentence per entry dedicated to Judith thinking about Marta. And I I found that really cute because, again, we don't really get to know the two of them or their dynamic in Gideon the Ninth. We definitely don't see them at all in Harrow. And so I, you know, I just thought it was it was cute. Yes. The next entry is basically a wait. Do you have a crush on this person? Oh, no. Do you have a crush on this person? (laughs) That's what this entry is. It's everyone's asking each other who has a crush on who. Yeah. Everyone says they don't have a crush on anyone. We know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's full of shit. Mm-hmm. It's mainly Judith asking Corona Beth if she's into Camilla. And Corona's mm-hmm. like, no, what? Yes. And says something like one half plus one half is only ever half. Yeah. Corona Beth and Camilla. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about the two of them. Right. That makes sense. Because Corona Beth doesn't have a Yante and Camilla doesn't have polamides and together they would still be fractured. Yeah. And then Corona Beth turns it around and is like, Judith, do you have designs on Camilla? (laughs) And Judith is like, hell no. And actually romance should be the furthest thing from our minds (laughs) because it's something BOE could exploit. And Corona Beth gets really upset by this. I think she asked Judith if at any point blood had ever flowed in her veins or if it had always been graphite shavings, which is like a great comeback. And I maybe I'll borrow that at some point. Yes, please let us know how it goes. 
Yeah. The other quick thing in this entry that is uh, important is this acknowledgement of the grief that Judith and Camilla are both feeling at the loss of their necromancers. And this is the first moment that we see Judith really judging Camilla's relationship with Palamides. And we'll get into that in a little in a little bit. But Judith is kind of on her high horse about how she had a healthier relationship with Marta than Camilla had with Palamides. Right. So the next entry is kind of a it's a bit of a plot point entry. It's basically Judith learns that the reason that BOE is keeping her alive is because they've managed to acquire a steely and they need a necromancer to work the steely. So they bring her in to look at it. She says, I don't know how to work this. And they get pissed. And Judith basically ends by saying that she hopes that she dies so that they can't use her. Yeah, Amy, what's a steely? A A steely is the thing that they put in ships in the nine houses. And somehow it transmits everything around it to a location determined by something called an obelisk. So basically, it is a means of traveling huge distances very quickly. But you have to have an obelisk at the end to attach to. It's like Mm -hmm. a beacon. Yeah, you have to know where you're going. Right. It's like in She-Ra when Glimmer... Oh, my God. Yeah, I've been watching. It's like in She-Ra when Glimmer has to know... She has to know the place to teleport there. She can't just like teleport somewhere without having seen it you know or knowing where it is excellent (laughs) crossover and the next entry is basically just judith asks camilla to kill her camilla says no judith asks corona beth to kill her and corona beth says she'll think about it it's a classic judith really wanting to die for the cause you know know. and no one helping her do that (laughs) oh poor judith i mean i do i do i feel bad for i mean this is such bad times for judith yeah judith is really on the on board the struggle bus and to be honest she has no idea what's in for her (laughs) after this this next entry is probably my favorite entry of the short story for two reasons the first part of it has a lot of like good foreshadowing for nona and then the second part of it we get this really awesome account of judith and marta's early relationship which i j- is so gay it's it's so gay and relatable yeah oh i'm sorry did you think that this short story wasn't gay <laughs> it is turns out it's, actually it also is additionally gay <laughs> yes yes surprise but interestingly before we get into the really great gay stuff we we get judith's opinion here around how we suffer cannot protect Camilla from the wrath of other people in Blood of Eden. And we actually know this becomes true in Nona. There is a breakdown between these different cells and kind of offshoots of Blood of Eden. But essentially, We Suffer has put herself in the position to like protect these prisoners <laughs> that right. are Camilla, Corona, and Judith. And Judith is really skeptical that We Suffer can actually protect them. And is skeptical of 
her leadership, of people's respect of her, and that other Edenites will get into disagreements with We Suffer when We Suffer makes decisions, which coming from Judith is probably quite appalling because the cohort is a very regimented in general, the military relies on obedience and loyalty. Right. Kind of unquestioning yeah, obedience. exactly. Like, Judith is the perfect soldier. Yes. And is seeing this kind of shit show that's going on in BOE and is like, I don't trust any of this. Right. It is modeling a different kind of leadership and collaboration where there's still a leader, but, you know, people can still speak up. And t at the end of the day, they're they're very effective, so... Mm -hmm. Something's working. Mm -hmm. But then we get into the Judith Marta stuff, which is interesting because the reason it comes up is that Judith is having a moment with Camilla where Camilla is, I think, taking care of the bed sores on Judith's legs. And Judith decides to tell Camilla about her relationship with Marta to make a point about Camilla and Palamides. The reason why I love this story is because I feel like I am Judith oh, in yeah. this story. I have been Judith mm -hmm. for sure, mm -hmm. especially as someone who's played sports their whole <laughs> life. Okay, this is like a classic dynamic. <laughs> anyway, here is the story that Judith tells Camilla. Marta is a hot, older, athletic soldier. Judith, who is the admiral's child is a young gay teen with a big old crush on this person, Marta. Right. And when they actually do interact, Judith learns that Marta likes the same books as her. But of course, Judith hasn't read these books as closely as she made it seem. So she goes and reads them all in a hurry. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, oh, my God, I'm definitely not them. Uh -huh. I'm like, oh, yeah, I love that band. And then I'll go back and listen to the whole discography. Uh-huh. Anyway, Judith becomes so relatable here in this story. So then Judith asks her daddy admiral if Marta can become her cavalier. And daddy admiral is like, I don't think Marta's going to want to do that. She's like a promising young soldier. It's actually not that fun to be a cavalier to the house's necromancer right. but to judith's little baby gay heart is is fulfilled because marta gives it a try for a year and i love the description of marta from judith's perspective judith clear mm -hmm. like this is just i have someone in mind when i was in high school who i had a thing for and this is like exactly how i thought of them uh -huh. <laughs> judith says Everything she did, she did well. Everything she didn't do well, she threw herself against so she could do it better or understand oh her weakness. She loved music. She was an excellent dancer, which I don't know about you, Amy, but I was shocked by that. Like, I didn't know that about Marta Dias from reading Gideon the Ninth at all. That was like a surprising turn. Yeah, she seems pretty hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Judith even like goes on to say that the duel that Marta had with Camilla, where Camilla destroyed her, all Dias said when they went back to their quarters was, I need a drink. Yeah. And then what's really funny is Judith, in her kind of like anxiousness, gets worried that Camilla thinks that Marta is an alcoholic. I know. So she's like, it's not like she wants to drink all the time, like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and Camilla's like, I never thought that. Like, I don't know why you're worried about it. But then Judith shares that 
their relationship gets to a point where Judith is like, I'm going to make a move. I got to tell Marta that I am in love with her. And she basically does this and Marta turns her down. And it's basically like it's really unhealthy for there to be any sort of romantic relationship between a cavalier and a necromancer because it could really turn into codependency which is a loss of self on both sides an obsessive fusion of halves not two complementary forces obviously camilla's like why are you telling me this and judith then ruins this moment that they're having where she's actually sharing something vulnerable and camilla's kind of like warming up to Ju- Judith as a person, and Judith is is basically like the relationship you you have with Palamides is unhealthy, mm-hmm. and like you need to let it go. Yeah, Camilla does not take this well, and Corona Beth comes in later and is like, "What did you say to Camilla?" <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Judith is pretty proud of her relationship with Marta and how it all went down, and she's grateful to Marta for turning her down, basically. And I. I see Judith's perspective here so hard. Mm-hmm. So many times we have asked ourselves, is the Camilla Palamides thing healthy? Is it too codependent? What is this relationship? It's never really fully defined. And so I get what Judith is. I get where Judith is coming from, for yeah. sure. I'm not like upset at Judith for this conversation. She's concerned that Camilla is, as far as she knows, obsessed with these bones And that she needs to basically move on, which is, I think, what I would say to a friend who was keeping the bones of their dead best friend. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, Amy. I feel like uh, when you die someday when you're 100 years old, I'm going to want to keep your bones. Wow, you'll also be so old. (laughs) 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 Anyway, I think... People can have whatever opinion they want to have about Camilla and Powell's relationship. I think what's what's great about these books is we get different perspectives from different characters that probably relate to however you, the reader, are feeling. Anyone picking up these books is going to see their opinion in someone in these books. And so Judith is offering one very strong opinion about this relationship And no, I mean, it doesn't go over well with Camilla. What I picked out of this is that, of course, is that (laughs) Judith says, Dias was so handsome, so attractive, so alive. In my childhood, I had already developed a taste for strength, physical (laughs) vivacity. (laughs) I mean, she's in love with Corona Beth. Yeah. So this makes sense. Yeah, totally. I had that thought too. It was great. She's got a type. She's got a type. Definitely. And it's like healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. The next entry is pretty short, but interesting to read after Nona because basically Corona Beth tells Judith that we suffer once to let Judith live no matter what, whether she can work the steely or not. Right. But that everyone else in Blood of Eden wants Judith dead because Judith is a necromancer and they hate zombies. And Corona Beth says something like, they all fought at Lumeria and have set opinions. And Lemuria is Blood of Eden's name of the place that the houses now call New Row. 
And when I reread this, I was like, Lemuria, like I've heard this before. What is this? And in Nona, in the chapter where Palamides confronts the messenger, um, right before the big battle where Posh and Camilla fight all these blood of Eden folks, we learn that the messenger is from Lemuria. And the messenger, Aim, talks about how terrible the terrible things that happened on Lemuria Mm -hmm. and so we get this reference here in as yet unsent but we have no context for it except that now we do have context for it and I won't quote the whole thing because there's a really long description about what happens on Lemuria but basically it's a planet that the houses killed it's a steel planet it's a steel planet and I think as we learned in Harrow when a planet is killed, the animals on that planet become mutants, Thanergy mutants. Right. And the messenger describes what's happening on Lemuria as these, essentially these animals became these Thanergy mutants. And it was like this horrible experience for everyone. And the houses had pulled support and were kind of dragging their feet on getting people out. It was just this like very violent and horrific thing that was happening and because the messenger was a zookeeper like a zoologist they were responsible for putting all these animals down anyway i'm sure there's like a lot more to the story of lumeria and i feel like we're probably going to hear quite a bit about it in electo but i thought it was cool that it was referenced here in as yet unsent yeah, you know what's also funny? We'll talk about this more. Lemuria comes from our world. It was like a continent proposed by this zoologist that was the origin of humans, humanity, and it, that it sunk beneath the ocean. Whoa. Anyway, I don't know like what the significance is. It didn't exist. It's not even really mythology. It's funny that it was a zoologist <laughs> who proposed it. Let's move on, though, because we we could really get into that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The next entry is just that Judith is in and out of delirium. She has a high fever. She's very close to death. And then we get to the next entry in which Judith is still alive. And this entry talks about a conversation or conversations that Judith and Coronabeth have. And this is where we kind of learn a little bit more about their background judith calls their relationship an acquaintanceship and corona beth is like we've known each other since we were eight (laughs) and corona beth sort of reminisces about the first time that they met and how she pretended to be hurt so judith would take care of her i mean come on (laughs) a classic 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 ploy and that judith totally played into it and that apparently Coronabeth invited Judith to all of her birthday parties because she loved interacting with her and like watching her. And Judith didn't know that it was Coronabeth. She thought that it had been Coronabeth's parents. But it's interesting because Coronabeth talks about how Judith wouldn't talk to her even though she would be like researching war stuff and cohort stuff for weeks ahead of time to have (laughs) stuff to talk to Judith about. And you can tell that Corona Beth just, it drives her crazy. Drives her banana. This is Corona Beth's 
thing. This is kryptonite for Corinna. Someone not taking interest in her. Yeah. She loves it. Also, quick note that Ianthi and Corinna's parents only let each of them invite one person to their birthdays. And Ianthi would always invite whoever Nibirius hated at the moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But Corona always spent that invite on Judith Deuterus. Yeah, surprise, surprise, Corona Beth and Ianthe's parents are dicks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's like Corona Beth reminisces about that story. And then in the present time, this plays out again, where Corona Beth is like pleading to Judith. And I think she calls her Jody, (laughs) which is cute, to like help her. And Judith is basically like, don't cry over me. I'm not worth it, which is really sad. Judith really hates herself and doesn't think that she is worth love, basically. Yeah. So we move on to the next entry. Enter Mercy Morn. Mercy Morn shows up. I mean, completely out of the blue. It's described in a way that's kind of weird because Judith is either blindfolded or she can't see. And she hears this person, this new person talking, and we know it's Mercy Morn immediately because there are extra exclamation points. Yeah. And Mercy Morn is just going off at BOE for the juvenile job they did on Judith's surgeries. And she goes in and immediately cures, more or less cures Judith. I don't think she fully cures her. I think she dampens her immune system or something. She basically does something to Judith's body that makes her live and able to work the steely, but not enough for Judith to basically like do anything else. That's so shitty. And she does that by weakening Judith's immune system. And I think if you didn't know this was Mercy Morn, just from the exclamation points and the berating of Blood of Eden... You know it's her because Judith describes the necromancy that Mercy Morn does as something she has never experienced, but like that it she couldn't even explain what was being done to her body. It was like so beyond her, which is kind of a callback to way back in the beginning of Harrow where Mercy paralyzes Harrow by like pinching a nerve or something in her. And there's some like weird body shit that is going on there as well. Yeah. We get some more insight into the extraction mission. Seymour says, I facilitated your extraction mission, and that is frankly as far as I'm willing to go. And so this makes me think that Mercy Morn was behind BOE getting. Camilla, Corona, Beth, and Judith off of oh, the first house. I was wondering what the fuck that was. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And she says that she was the one who basically told them that if they got the means to use the steely, she would give them a steely. And so now they have it. And she's kind of like, what are you going to do with this? March on the Mithraeum? Good luck. <laughs> Not. <laughs> she's like such a chaotic person. I know. Just... All over the place. So high key. (laughs) Yeah. And then she says, keep this thing clean and don't expose it to people. Make sure you wipe down its surfaces. I can't do any more for you. And I think she's referring to Judith. She is. It's like. That's fucked up. It's really fucked up because throughout this Mercy Morn continues to refer to Judith as this thing. Right. Which is just so. Yeah, she's not good. 
No. And then she goes off to check on Gideon's body, which is interesting because in the end of Harrow, she says, you know, I checked your body, but I didn't think to check on the eyes. That was stupid of me. And like berates herself for not checking the eyes, which I think would have cleared a lot up a lot sooner (laughs) for her. Yeah. Would have definitely like made for a different book in Harrow. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. God has killed day one. (laughs) Yeah. But we kind of close with Coronabeth, Camilla, and Judith walking over to observe Gideon's body, which is a really good end to this short story as we like anticipated the next book. Right. And the corpse is still in perfect condition. This is where we also learn that Coronabeth did, in fact, pick up Gideon's rapier on Canaan House and still has it, which we'll see in Harrow. And then we see again in Nona. Coronabeth also says, that Gideon was yummy, fantastic body. <laughs> Love that. Mm-hmm. There is a somewhat confusing reference here that I wanted to ask you about, which was Judith is essentially like basically reveals that it was Camilla who convinced Blood of Eden to take Gideon's body on board and that Judith never really understood why. And that Camilla never explained why and said with some business about a note. And the timing of this is like very confusing to me because there would have been a note before the lobotomy. So this would mean that there was some interaction between Harrow and either Palamides or Camilla about keeping Gideon's body before Harrow lobotomizes herself. I thought this was immediately, I thought that this was the note that Gideon picks up in the second study that says Gideon on it. Tell me more. You know when Harrow and Gideon go and they find the second weird laboratory study thing and then Gideon in that drawer finds that note with her name on it. Yeah. But it's 10,000 years old. And then she gives that to Palamides. And I think what it is is Palamides has this note and is like, there's something about Gideon. Something's going on with Gideon. And it's that that convinces Camilla that it's worth holding on to Gideon's body. Oh, I think that's the note. Or if it's a note that was written at some other time, I think it was probably a note from Palamides, not from Harrow. I think it's Palamides was like, there's something going on. But I think the note is referring to the note with Gideon's name on it. I think that's a good assumption because Palamides would have died before Gideon died. So it, there wouldn't be like a note that Palamides wrote to Camilla to be like, preserve Gideon's body, because presumably he wouldn't have known that Gideon was ever going to die. Right. So it would have had to be something. And all of that stuff happened very quickly. And I think, uh, you know, in some ways, Palamides was prepared for it, but he says he wasn't quite prepared for that exact end. So I think it would have had to be a note that, that existed beforehand. I think it was mm-hmm. the note that they found in the study. Interesting. Okay. Cool. If if you're still listening <laughs> and you have a thought about that, we want to know it too. I'm curious what y'all think. Mm-hmm. And then to close this out, we get one final Corona Beth Judith moment. In fact, it's kind of the Corona Beth Judith moment. Corona Beth and Judith are together near Gideon's body. I think it's just the two of them. And Corona turns to Judith and basically asks her if she can be her cavalier. And she says, here now at the end of the world, you know, take my sword, save me, Jody, bind me to you, or who knows where I will go? What throne will I mount if you don't bind me down? It's a great sentence. 
Yeah. Such a good sentence. And Judith says no, but then in this note that she's writing, she says that she hadn't even considered it. Like she wouldn't even consider it. And the reason isn't that she doesn't want Corona Beths to be her cavalier, but Mel, do you want to just read that last paragraph since it's the extra gay plus paragraph? Yeah. We close out with this extra gay plus 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 paragraph where Judith says, this isn't a confession of temptation. I wasn't tempted by Corona Beth's offer. There was never any possibility of it. I committed the understandable crime of desire for Lieutenant Marta Dias, having joined my hand to hers with the best and most pure of intentions. Why would I ever knowingly take Corona Beth Tridentarius's? having desired her already for 12 long, stupid, fruitless years. And I said, thank you for the offer, your highness, but not in this life or in any other. <laughs> Oof. So it's official. Judith does like Corona Beth. And it turns for out 12 for 12 years. years. And then it turns <laughs> out that Corona Beth, tragically, is also super into Judith. I hope that they get some sort of ending... But I feel like if anyone's going to be sacrificed, it's going to be them. <laughs> yeah. But I want them to go, like, live on a farm somewhere. and I'm sure that story is out there. I'm it's sure true. it's out there. Direct us to your <laughs> Judith Corona Beth farm life, homesteading, off yeah. the grid <laughs> fan fiction, please. So I don't know. Like, I loved reading this short story post-Nona. Yes. You know, it's so good. It's really well written, as is everything Tanzania mm. writes. But in particular, really fun to get Judith's perspective. And to see this love story between Judith and Corona Beth is totally unexpected. And it's very tragic. Very tragic and makes reading their, di like, Corona Beth's behaviors towards Judith in Nona that much sadder <laughs> for the reader. Yeah. It's true. So glad we were able to cover that. I'm kind of glad that we, we were going to try and squeeze it in before Nona came out, but I'm actually really glad that we had Nona out already to go over this last bit. Yeah, that was really, that was great. All right. So we should wrap it up here. That was a, that was a lot of, of talking for one short story. Oh my God. I wasn't expecting that. I thought this was going to be like a 30 minute episode. Well, <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. So thank you guys so much for joining us. If you liked this podcast, please rate or review us wherever you listen. And if you have any questions or comments or want to point out something that we've missed, send us a question on our website, locktoompod.com or on Twitter at locktoompod. Thanks as always to Olivia Kay for our theme music. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. And we'll see you next time here at the Locktoom Podcast.